church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints together with all those who are in every place. Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that there be no division among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For just as the body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Our scripture this morning is out of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 27. If you guys would read along with me as I read here. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is God's word. All right, well, good morning, everyone. How y'all doing? Good, good. That's the second time I've asked you, so thank you for responding the second time. Well, as you could, uh, as you could tell, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the latter half. Uh, if you're here for the first time at the transit, what we do from the pulpit is we like to go through books of the Bible, and so we're in 1 Corinthians, which is uh, a letter, a correspondence, if you will, that the Apostle Paul wrote to the early church, a church that he planted in the city of Corinth. And if you were um, uh, here last week, you know that we looked at the first half of chapter 9, and there's three things in chapter 9 that the Apostle Paul uh, uh, points to the Corinthians to. One is he kind of defends his apostleship. There were some, not all, the church of Corinth who uh, were hating on Paul, for lack of a better term. They were questioning his effectiveness, his legitimacy as uh, an apostle, uh, uh, challenging his calling commission by Jesus Christ to lay the foundation of the church. Kind of like a really big deal. So Paul takes some time to defend his apostleship. He says that, hey, I've been a witness to the the, the risen Lord and your existence is proof of my apostleship uh, because you exist as Christians in the church. Uh, And then he points them, second thing he points them to, as we looked at last week, is he points them to, to, he lays out a description of all of his apostolic rights, that he says the apostles have a right 
um, a God-given right, if you will, to get material and financial support from the people there serving. This is the way God uh, ordained it. If you so he lays out, he, he kind of goes at length to uh, lay out some arguments for why he has a right to support from those he is serving. And then he does something radical. He does something that you wouldn't expect. And the third thing he, he, he does is he shows the Corinthians how he died to all of those rights. And he didn't take a dime, literally did not take a dime of support from the Corinthians so that they could come to know and see and follow Jesus. And in verse 12 of the chapter we're in, we looked at this last week, he says, he says I would rather endure anything than put an obstacle in the way of you coming to see Jesus and knowing Jesus and following this Jesus. What I have received freely from God, the gift of salvation made possible through Jesus Christ, I am assuredly not going to make you think you have to pay for that gift and pay your way into God's, God's grace. And so what we saw, one of the main thrusts of uh, last week, what we saw for Paul is that Jesus was of surpassing worth for the Apostle Paul. Therefore, he was willing to suffer financially so that the Corinthians could, could, uh, could thrive spiritually. He said, I'll take the hit, take my wealth, I'll work part-time or full-time, overtime as a tent maker so I don't have to burden you financially so that you can thrive. I'll take the hit financially so you can thrive spiritually. Because for Paul, Jesus was better. And that's the only way we'll ever be willing to limit our freedoms we have in Christ um, and, and love sacrificially is when Jesus is better than our wealth, our comfort, our safety. Um, and so today, in the latter half of 1 Corinthians 9, where we're at today, is, uh, is simply a continuation of that thought. And the title of the sermon this morning is All for the Sake of of the gospel. That's what Paul says in our text today, all for the sake of the gospel. It's so interesting in the Greek, when we look at that word all, what it actually means is all. Every single aspect of your life is to be given for the sake of the gospel. Notice, notice it's not some for the sake of the gospel, not, not a little bit for the sake of the gospel, not my Sunday mornings and, and Wednesday nights at community group, only if I'm feeling it for the sake of the gospel, Paul says this gospel changes every single aspect of our lives. There is no area of our lives that this Jesus does not radically change. And so my hope this morning is this, is that, is that God would grant us the grace of an accurate response to who he is and what he's done for us in Christ Jesus. He would grant us the grace of an accurate response in our lives to his goodness and his kindness manifested through Jesus Christ, because for sure there's some of us here who've been drifting. Our hearts have grown cold. Uh, instead of us running the race with endurance, we're kind of drifting aimlessly, if not just fallen, and we necessarily maybe haven't gotten back up. And my hope is that the Holy Spirit would be poured out and bring about revival in our hearts so that we would leave here like a stallion out of the gate on our feet, running full sprint to our Savior who's cheering us on in this race that he has set before us. And so the two things we're going to be looking at in our text today that Paul points us to is that this gospel reframes uh, our posture towards humanity, towards others. It completely reframes now our position, our posture towards others. And secondly, it reframes our posture towards ourselves. So let me pray and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that you're a kind God. You're a gracious God. You're a faithful God. You keep your promises. You keep your word unlike us. And so we come before you just humbled by your love for us and thankful um, that what was on our horizon, what was on our horizon was once dark and hopeless 
and devoid of any meaning, but Jesus, you came, and now what's on our horizon is golden horizon of glory that awaits us because of your undeserved grace and love for us. So would, we, would, you, would you just blow our minds away with your love manifested uh, through the giving of your son, Jesus? Holy Spirit, would you come, would you stir in our hearts a love for Jesus, a passion to run a passion to get up, a passion to stop drifting, a passion just out of joy in God, love for you that would motivate us to start running, running the race set before us. And so we pray, uh, Holy Spirit, that you come and you do that and grant us the grace of an accurate response to your kindness to us. And uh, I pray ultimately, Father, that you would be glorified, that you would increase and I would decrease. We pray this in your name. Amen. Our first thing we're looking at is that the gospel reframes our posture towards others. Verse 19, Paul says this. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So if we were to ask the question, what should our primary posture or position be towards others as followers of Jesus, what the Apostle Paul would say, our posture should be that of a slave, of a servant. The Greek word here is doulos. It's a bond servant. It means slave. And in the Greco-Roman world at this time, there were two groups, people primarily, two distinctions, slave and free. Slave and free. According to the Institutes of the Roman Jurist Gaius, the principal distinction made by the law of persons is this. All human beings are either free or slaves. That was the world the Corinthians were living in. That was the world that Paul was living in. Slaves were those who, who took on a social death. They, they lived to serve, not their own purposes, but the purpose of their master, and served almost literally as the surrogate body of their master. Took on their master's culture, their master's interests, their master's religion. As a slave, it was a social death. In contrast to that, free men and women were to come and go as they pleased. They could live to strive and labor for their own interest. And so what Paul is saying here is this, is these letters would have been read out loud in the early church. And as the reader of these scriptures in Corinth is, gets, to verse, gets to verse 19, I imagine there would have been an audible gasp in, uh, in the church at Corinth when they read this letter. Because what Paul is suggesting here is the insane. He's saying, I am a free Roman citizen. It's not just that I'm free in Christ. He's saying, I'm a free Roman citizen, yet my posture, my position towards others is that of a slave. Which means now, which means I now exist for the life, the benefit, the good, the salvation of others. And we saw this last week in verse 19 when the apostle Paul says, necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. It's not just a matter of me getting paid for the gospel. I actually owe the gospel to humanity. Therefore, woe is me if I don't give them their due because I, my posture is slave to them. I owe them. My life now is, is oriented towards their good, their salvation. That's why I exist. And this is radical, right? This doesn't sit too well with us. And, and we want to say, okay, well, this is Paul, and, and I'm sure there's different interpretations of this, Nick. Well, I don't remember Jesus ever saying be a slave Slave to everyone, and uh, not that you asked that question, but um, I'm going to say thank you for asking that question, which leads me to Mark 10. Mark 10. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark 10. The verses will be on the screen as well. The context of what happens in Mark 10 is um, there's these guys, James and John, the son of Zebedee, to give you uh, some, some character development, if you will. They're known for, in Luke 9, Jesus gets rejected by a Samaritan village, and these guys, they leave the village, and they're kind of like, 
you know, angry about that, and they asked Jesus, hey, do you want us to rain down fire upon that village and destroy them? Like, you want us to napalm the village? So that's James and John, son of Zebedee, okay? And then, so that's like strike one. We're going to look at strike two for them in Mark 10. They approach Jesus, and uh, our passage, the, the, the passage that we're looking at starts out with them saying, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Not a good start, okay? Not a good start. We want you to do whatever we ask of you. And then they say, and Jesus is like, okay, well, what do you want? And uh, they say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Jesus, if this is you reigning above the heavens and the earth, I want to be here, and my brother wants to be right here, and I want all the other disciples to be underneath me, okay, and everyone else to be underneath me. They called shotgun seat to the, to the throne of glory. That's what they're doing. They're calling shotgun. And it says, and it says that the, the disciples were indignant. The disciples were pretty angry about them. This is how Jesus responds to that attitude. Jesus always goes to the heart of the issue. This is what he says to James and John. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And look at 44, and whoever would be first among you must be slave. Slave of all. Why? For even the Son of Man, for even Jesus Christ, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus isn't just telling them this is their posture. Jesus is saying, this is why I exist. This is why I came to earth, to be a servant of all. So that, so that, many multitudes would come to salvation. So for Jesus Christ, the way up is down. If you want glory and greatness, consider yourself a servant and a slave of all. And this is our posture towards humanity. And I don't have time enough to go into uh, boundaries or codependency issues, but I don't think that's necessarily as big of an issue as you and I changing our heart, our heart posture of longing to serve others rather than be served by them. And to see our calling now as followers of Jesus to thrive and to strive with every ounce we have for the salvation and the good of others, not just our own kingdom and our own interests. And so um, you might be asking, well, what does this look like then? And that's what Paul says in verses 20 through 22. He gives us an illustration of what this posture looks like. He says in verse 20, he says, I'll paraphrase because we've already read it. He says, to the Jews I became Jew, as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. And to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I become all things um, so that by uh, all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And so initial response would be, isn't this kind of a questionable ethic? It's kind of, is Paul advocating like a chameleon Christianity where you compromise your, your values, your gospel ethic to, to, uh, to just make Christianity cool, right? Is that what he's advocating? And, and, and he's not. What does he mean when he says, I became, I became all things to all people? I think a two-word summary of everything he said in verses 20 through 22, the, the ministry style that Paul is advocating is incarnational ministry incarnational ministry. See, at the incarnation of Jesus, we see the divine left his throne, took on flesh, stepped into our world. He limited his freedom in time and space, and, and he knew what it was like to walk our roads, to eat our foods, to, to face our temptations, feel our sorrows, and he identified with us in our weakness. And Hebrews two seventeen through 18 says this, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made, be made like his brothers in every respect. Be made like his brothers in every 
respect as the incarnation, so that he might be, uh, become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so when Paul says that I become all things to all people so that I might win some to Jesus, he's, he's simply reenacting the incarnation of Jesus. He's simply imitating the gospel. Simply imitating, this is what uh, Paul Miller says in Paul Miller's new book, The J-Curve. I don't get paid to every sermon reference a Paul Miller book, but um, you should go buy it. It's a good book. Uh, he says this, Paul goes into some detail describing how he incarnates. He takes on the lifestyle and culture of the people he seeks to win to Christ. To the Jew, I became a Jew. To the weak, I became, become weak. He does so to win some to the beauty and wonder of Jesus. Listen to this last line. He enters their worlds so they can enter Jesus' world. He enters their world so that by doing so, they can enter Jesus' world. And so Paul's not laying aside his Christian ethics when he says to the Jew, I became as a Jew, and to the Gentile, I became as a Gentile. It's actually his Christian ethic that drives him to do that. So I think for us, oftentimes we think Christianity, following Jesus, is all, is all about things we don't do, right? I just got to follow all these rules, now that'll make me a good Christian. And therefore, therefore, that keeps us from following Jesus to the places he went. You tracking with me? Well, I can't go there. Oh, I can't talk to those people because I would break these rules to do that. And what we see with the Apostle Paul in morally neutral areas, he would gladly try to speak the language, adapt to the culture, to not put any obstacle in the way of people coming to know Jesus Christ. Paul's heart was that the only obstacle to, to people accepting and receiving Jesus, so his only obstacle to the gospel, was the gospel. Which I don't know if you know this, the gospel is actually highly offensive, as it should be. Because uh, for, for you to preach good news, it has to be really good news, or you have to preach some really bad news as well. And Paul's, Paul's offense, the only thing that he wanted to offend others was the gospel, and not any cultural things that he would refuse to adjust to. And so when he says to the Jews that became Jew, we see him uh, uh, do this throughout Acts. Acts 16, in Acts chapter 16, when Timothy joins Paul and Silas to go minister to the Jews, Paul had Timothy circumcised. Imagine how that conversation went, right? I mean, God bless them. Um, Acts, 20, Acts 21. Acts 21, we see Paul actually observe the rules of Jewish purification at the Jerusalem temple. And all throughout Acts, we see Paul, when he goes into synagogues, he habitually used Old Testament arguments, examples, and quotations. All this was done to enter into their world so that they could enter into Jesus' world. He speaks their language in order to remove any unnecessary offense to the gospel. However, if you've read Acts, you know that to those outside the law, he became like those outside the law. When he approaches and speaks to Gentiles in Acts 17, when he's at Athens and he's talking to, you know, all the, uh, the intellectually savvy philosophers in Athens, he, his approach is not uh, uh, lambasting them with all these Old Testament references and scriptures that they would have no clue about. He actually, what Paul does in Acts 17, he quotes pagan Greek authors. He quotes pagan Greek writers, and so he actually quotes a, a, a hymn dedicated to Zeus, uh, authored by Epimenides in 600 BC, and it's a, it's a hymn that we, we sing today. We sung this at transit. In him, we live and move and have our being. And so Paul calls dibs on that, and he says, right truth, wrong God. Okay, right truth, wrong God. And so that's why we, 2,000 years later, we're singing, in him do we live, move, anyone? No? Okay, just me. All right, great song. I love it. But that was 600 BC, dedicated to Zeus, okay? But we hijacked that, all right? Right truth, wrong God. 
And so we see Paul preach the same gospel, but take a different approach, uh, adopt a different language, uh, enter into a different culture. And so, and so that should be okay with us. It should be okay with us that the church in Northern Virginia is going to look different than a church in Ethiopia. Different group of people. That's, that's like, like heaven. The nations. The nations will be there. Tribes, tongues, people all across the earth. Churches are going to look different in different cultures. Same gospel, different language, different culture, different ministry. And so all that to say is this, is that effective gospel ministry in our lives is incarnational ministry is incarnational ministry. It's doing the hard work of entering into uh, the worlds of other people that we love and serve. Because that's what Jesus did for us. And I'm saying, well, why did Paul go to such great lengths? One life to live. Why did he consider himself a slave to all and, and adopt everyone else's culture rather than sit back and demand everyone take on his? And the reason why was, uh, was his desire that he might win some to Jesus. All things to all people, whatever it takes, so that I might win some, not all, but I might wait some to Christ. And uh, he says this in verse 23, I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Look at verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. I love that last part there, that I might share with them in its blessing. And so what's so interesting here, it's as if Paul is saying that his joy in knowing Jesus his joy in the gospel was ultimately fulfilled, not just in his receiving of it and all the spiritual blessings that come with knowing Jesus. His ultimate joy was not just in receiving it, but in his sharing of it with others. That's when that joy was fully manifested, when he began to share. It was too good. This good news of who Jesus was was too good to keep to himself that he just he shared it. He, he spoke about it. His whole life was, was reoriented to that purpose. And Philemon 1.6 says, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge. Sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of what? Of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Jesus Christ. You want a full knowledge of, of all the good uh, things we have in, in, for the sake of Jesus Christ? Well, start sharing your faith. Start sharing your faith. Chris Austin, the early church father, says that the Apostle Paul, I love this, the Apostle Paul has an insatiable desire for the salvation of mankind. An insatiable desire for the salvation of mankind. And so my challenge, I was convicted of this, this sermon and um, uh, of this text as I was preparing it. And my challenge to us this morning, do we share this passion? Like church, do we? Is this what, is this, is this what keeps us up at night? Does, does this desire change an iota on our calendar? Does it change any way we spend or not spend or hoard up our wealth? Does this change anything? This desire, and I'm preaching to myself, does this, this desire that others would come to share in the blessing of knowing Jesus Christ, does it change anything about our lives? And, it, and, and if, if we're honest with ourselves, oftentimes we just get so wrapped up in the busyness of our culture and our own lives and our own kingdom that if we're to be honest with ourselves, say no, tragically, because we're miss, missing the entire purpose of our lives. And so would you join me in praying this prayer? Okay, well then, Nick, what should our response be? One, man, would you start praying to that? And if you're here today and you say, I don't have that insatiable desire for the salvation of mankind, start praying to that end and see what God does, right? I think certain prayers bring a big smile to God the Father's face. 
And God is a good father. We can pray for material, material things, provision or, you know, or, or whatever. But when you start praying spiritual prayers for your own life to advance the kingdom of God, I think God gets a big smile on his face and says, all right, giddy up, let's go. Ask and you shall receive, right? Like if you pray, God, Lord, just give me a drop, a little drop of whatever the apostle Paul has in his, in his posture towards humanity and just see what God does. Pray that with a sincere heart. Pray that. Would you join me in praying that? Would you join me in praying that? Secondly, make a list of people that you already know in your family or at your workplace or whoever, or your neighbors that don't know Jesus. Start praying for them. Start praying for them. And then thirdly, pray for opportunities to share Jesus with them. And, and listen, church, listen. Just see. Just see what God does when his people pray to that end. Just see what he does. Would you join me in praying that prayer? So We've got to move on here. The second thing that Paul points us to is that, one, our, our, the gospel reframes our posture towards others, but secondly, it reframes our posture towards ourselves. It changes everything, all for the sake of the gospel. Verses 24 through 27, he says this, do you not know that in a race all the, ra- the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So uh, if you were in Corinth at the time of receiving this letter, uh, uh, Paul here is using an illustration that they would have known immediately. Every two years in Corinth, uh, Corinth would host the, the Isthmian Games, kind of like the Olympic Games, but in Corinth. It was called the Isthmian Games. I think I'm saying that correctly. I don't know. Wikipedia. Look it up. Anyways, um, and the city of Corinth, the, the, the Corinthians at the, at the early church in Corinth would have attended these games. Maybe some of them would have tried out for the games. They would have seen the athletes training. So I think there's a couple of reasons Paul is pointing uh, 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 them to this illustration. One, I think the first thing he's pointing them to is he's saying, look at these athletes. Look at their single-minded, determined, unwavering discipline. It's laudable. Their, Their discipline is laudable. It's worthy of praise. He says every single aspect of their lives is reoriented towards running the race that is to come and running it well, and he's saying, look at them. He's saying, so 10 months leading up to the event, the athletes would begin training. And so literally, this race before them changed, changed when they woke up, right? They'd be waking up at the, the crack of dawn. It changed what they ate. Now their diet consisted of chia seeds and kale and coconut oil, you know, all, the, all that stuff. And they're not eating Briar's ice cream. They're eating this fake ice cream called Halo Top and, you know, all this other stuff. They're, they're making huge sacrifices, Huge sacrifices, what they eat. And then their workouts change. They're not just like, you know, waltzing on the treadmill, you know, sashaying in the gym. Like, no, they're doing like the weighted vest, full sprints. They're, they got the oxygen deprivation mask on. And they're doing the, you know, the cool thing with the, you know, making the, the ropes <laughs> And they do that until they black out from lack of oxygen. Like they're, they're torturing their bodies for this race. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look at how they master their bodies for such a higher cause. The blood, the sweat, the tears, the early mornings, the sore muscles, day in and day out for 10 months. Look at what they're willing to do. And Paul is saying, if there's one place in the Christian life we are to take the position of power, take the position of master, take the position of authority, it's over our own bodies. We are slave to humanity, and our body is a slave to us. We are not a slave to our body. And uh, the picture we get from this, it's, it's almost as if uh, we could ask ourselves this question. Do our bodies 
uh, and our flesh and the cravings, the temptations that come with the flesh, does that have us on a leash? So when those cravings come, we just say, all right, the body wants to go this way, I got to go this way. Or do we have our body on a leash, and when our body has those cravings, we say, nope, we're coming this way. Nope, we're staying on the straight and narrow. We're not going to the right or to the left. This is, we're, we're submitting, my body is submitted to Christ, and body, you're going to be submitted to Christ as well. My body exists for the sake of the gospel. And so uh, in college, my roommate had uh, a miniature schnauzer who had a Napoleon complex. We got him, he got him as a puppy, and this dog was an awful dog because he was raised by college students. So imagine how that worked out for that poor dog. Um, but occasionally I have to walk this dog, and he's terrible on the leash, and like we'd be walking him, he'd see another dog across uh, the street, and he'd make a very convincing argument, pulling on the leash, loudly barking that, I need to go across the street, I need to go kill that dog, Nick, let me go kill that dog, and I'd say, no, reel it in, man, you're coming over here, or he'd smell something in the woods, say, that's the best smell I've ever smelled in my life, there's true life, I need to go over there, and I'd, I'd pull him back in, I think for, uh, for us, when it comes to our cravings, the problem is not that on the end of, uh, of that leash is, uh, a five-pound miniature schnauzer that we can just reel in. But if we're being honest with some of those biggest areas of weaknesses in our lives, what's on the end of that leash is like a 400-pound Kodiak bear, right? Sometimes you feel like that. We're like, boom, like that thing just takes off and, 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 you're, and you're, you're toast, right? And so then, then, the pro, then the question is, well, then what does discipline look like? How do I reel in if the craving is that strong? Do I dig my heels in farther? Or, or you know, what do I do? And I, I think this is what it looks like. I think we've got to work on our surrender muscles, our surrender muscles, right? And what that looks like is when that temptation comes, when that craving comes, with whatever it is for you, uh, it, it, this, is, this, is, this is what we do. So digging our heels in and, and trying it with everything we to hold back, which is good. Fight the good fight of faith. But what would it look like if we were to invite the one who has all power and all authority into that moment and say, Jesus, here's the leash. You, you come be victorious over this craving. You come get the glory, Jesus, in this fight. I can't. I think you can. Here's the leash. Turn that Kodiak bear into a five-pound miniature schnauzer, Right? And I think, I think that is how we begin to discipline our bodies is through the power of the Spirit because where we go wrong in the Christian life, and Paul wouldn't even advocate this, I don't think, in his text because he always talks about this. Do not fight the flesh with the flesh. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the Spirit. And so we need to fight in the power of the Spirit that he provides to fight our flesh. When you and I try to fight the flesh with the flesh, that's why we always fail. We need to invite the Holy Spirit in that moment to give us the power to overcome. We need to work on our surrender muscles. That's what we need to work on. Um, and uh, I lost my place in my notes, sorry. Boom. Discipline, I found it. So that, me saying boom is me saying I found it. Um, discipline is never for the sake of discipline. Christian, Christian. Oftentimes the spiritual discipline, oh, I gotta be Christian, I gotta be, the Christians are disciplined, therefore I gotta be disciplined. No, Paul is advocating discipline because discipline is always to obtain something beyond just discipline. There's a reward at the end of discipline, and you have to keep that reward in front of you in order to do what you don't wanna do, right? Discipline isn't fun. If you're disciplined just for the sake of discipline, it's not gonna last long, but if you have a high reward that you're attaining, you're willing to endure anything for the higher reward, and that's the next thing that Paul points them to. He says, look at their reward. Look at their reward. In a way, he says their discipline is laudable, but their reward is laughable. And that might be going too far. I don't want to put words in the Apostle Paul's mouth. But he says they do all of that day in and day out for an imperishable, for a perishable wreath. Perishable wreath. 
And look this up. It was made of withered celery, church. Like, like, the, not, like not even the good vegetables. Like, like celery. It's disgusting. Like you have to cover celery and peanut butter and chocolate to even digest that stuff. And for 10 months, these athletes would eat celery, and then they win the race, and they get, they got to wear celery. It's awful, right? <laughs> withered celery. No joke. Look it up. That was, that's what it was woven out of. What an awful, what an awful gift. Thanks. I'll throw that directly in the trash. Um, but they do all of that. That's what Paul's saying, is they do all of that for a silly wreath made of dead vegetables. And I can't think of a better picture of the reward we receive when we labor for that which has no eternal significance. This is what Spurgeon says. If you run for anything else in salvation, should you win, that uh, what you have won is not worth running for. So hey, chase after it, but is it, is it worth it in the end? Is that truly where our focus should be? And so in contrast to that, Paul says, how much more motivation do we have for personal discipline in our, our lives for the imperishable that awaits us? The unfading crown of glory. You might be saying, well, what is that imperishable? And there's some de- debate here about, uh, uh, in commentaries, New Testament scholars, is the reward, the crown, uh, the, the, the wreath here that Paul's talking about, is it salvation or is it rewards? Um, because, I don't know if you know this, but there, there will be in heaven varying degrees of eternal rewards for the saints, for how we spent our time. This is what Randy Alcorn says. Salvation and rewards are different. Salvation is about God's work for us. It's a free gift to which we can contribute absolutely nothing. Rewards are about our work for God. Salvation is dependent on God's faithfulness to his promises and on his mercy. Rewards are conditional, dependent on our faithfulness. Now the words will be on the screen. Belief determines our eternal destination, where we'll be. Behavior determines our eternal rewards, what we'll have. Works do not affect our redemption. Works do not affect our redemption, but works do affect our reward. Just as there are eternal consequences to our faith, so there are eternal consequences to our work. So I'm not going to get into a debate about necessarily what the imperishable is that that Paul is talking about here, but I think a helpful question is this, is how do you want to cross the finish line, church? That's the question we're faced with. How do you want to cross the finish line? There's a finish line. This life is all going somewhere. How do we want to cross the finish line? For some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we're just, the way we're going to cross is just walking aimlessly, uh, drifting, texting, all of a sudden, everyone starts cheering, they, they scare you, and you say, oh my gosh, where am I? You know? Are you cross, is that how we want to cross the finish line? Like, hey, do you guys get Wi-Fi here? I still need to upload this Snapchat story. Like, is that, is that how we want to cross into glory, or is it, or is it my eyes are fixed? Like, like, crossing into glory doesn't surprise us, right? Like, because that's where our focus has been, and man, maybe we're running full sprint, crossing triumphantly, or maybe, maybe we're, we're limping, but hey, we're rolling deep. We're bringing a lot of people with us, and when we cross that finish line, man, we're excited, fist in the air, because it's been set before us. That joy has been set before us, so it changes what we do today. How do we want to finish? How do we want to cross the finish line? And the Apostle Paul says in Acts 20, verse 24, Listen to what he says here in Acts 20. Listen to what he says. I do not count my life of any value. I don't count my life of any value. This is what he says. Nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course. And, and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, all for the sake of the gospel. My life, my body exists for the sake of gospel. Therefore, I will discipline my body and submit it, lest I be disqualified. Lest I be disqualified. Um, and so I'll, I'll conclude with this photo, if you will, uh, if you can pull that up. 
Um, so a couple of disclaimers here. Wow, it's pretty dark on this screen. If you look to the side screens, I'll come over here. So this photo is hanging in my office. Couple disclaimers. One is I'm not doing this to show that like I'm a good dad or anything, so please like suspend judgment. I know it's hard when I'm showing a picture of myself and my daughter. Secondly, this is not a staged, like one of those things where, like we came planned to like, hey, I'm gonna run this way, and you're gonna get a photo of it, all that stuff. It was kind of like a candid moment, a Kodak moment for all of you who are over 30. Um, uh, and so we were at my sister's farm, and Kelsey and I were just playing in the field, and my sister got a picture of this, and as we're looking at the photos, I saw this, and it, it kind of staggered me. And I can't think of a better picture to represent what Paul's talking about here. I'll, it's hanging in my office, so I'm sitting in my Ikea reading chair, drinking my coffee. I'll look at that, and I'll start asking questions of that picture because it helps me keep that horizon in, 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 my, in my view. And so a couple things that stick out with this is, one, is you, if you look at the photo, if you look at the photo, there's a movement, right? The, the people in the photo, there's a direction they have, almost as if they're running a race, right? There's direction, there's movement, but what's the destination? Where are they going? Well, there's this golden sky that's their destination. That's where their, their, their direction, their, their focus is. But they're not there yet, right? Before they get there, there's, there's trees, there's hills, there's valleys, there's dark forests, which means that, hey, this race you're running to get to that golden horizon of glory is going to be a difficult race. There's going to be trials. There's going to be uh, difficulties, and therefore discipline is going to be needed so that man in that photo gets to where he needs to be with as many people as possible, all for the sake of reaching that horizon, all for the sake of the gospel, reaching that horizon with as many people as as possible. And when I look at this photo, I can't help but think of outside of the frame, the world, the flesh, the devil, constantly yelling at that man in that photo, daily bombarding him, saying, you're going the wrong way. That's not where true life is found. You're running the wrong race. Take a right. It's more fun over here. Take a left. This way is easier. Um, and then uh, one of the other things that uh, I love about this photo is there's somebody else in this photo besides me. My precious three-year-old daughter who's literally in the photo following in my footsteps. And so what this reminds me of is that this race that I'm running is not just about me. What I do matters eternally. What I do matters has, has, has huge consequences. And so then the question that I'm faced with when I, when I look at this photo is I ask myself, well, well, how does that man get to that place that he's, he's running to? How, how does that happen? And I think... I think it's this. That man has to continually keep before him that horizon. I have to have my eyes every single day from the second I wake up fixed on that horizon. That horizon. Because no matter what difficulty comes, no trial comes, I know that at the end of that horizon, there's an imperishable crown of life. And Jesus Christ is shouting my name, waiting for me. He's going to scoop me up in my arms when I cross from this life to the next and say, well done. Well done, my beloved son, my good and faithful servant. You have fought the fight of faith. You have run the race well. Good job. And it's not just that Jesus is there in that golden horizon waiting for me. He's not just the founder of this race, the founder of salvation. He hasn't just changed the horizon for Nick Mudrizo. But in Hebrews 12, it says that he's also the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. And so what we don't see in this photo is that I'm not running solo. I'm not running this race in my own strength. Jesus is shoulder to shoulder with me every step of the way, cheering me on, saying, go, Nick. Fight the good fight of faith. Keep going. When I fall down, because all of us fall down and get tripped up in this photo, Jesus isn't sitting there from a distance condemning and laughing and snickering and saying, yeah, you sit there and grovel. He's saying, hey, you're in a race, Nick. Get up. 
The righteous man, though he fall, he gets back up. Rise up again. Let's go, Nick. Let's go. And so the only way that that man makes it to that horizon is because Jesus went before him and Jesus goes with him. That I need to fight in the power that he provides, not in my own strength. Because the very last thing that Jesus said in Matthew uh, 28, he gave us the race that was set before us. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. And we always miss the very last thing he says. And behold, I am with you. I am with you always. Church, we don't run the race alone. We run it with Christ through the power he provides. And this is what Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. If I were to challenge us today, I'd say, hey, you know, Paul in our text, he talks about disqualification being an option for us. Not necessarily that the saints can lose their salvation, but we can be disqualified. And, and a quick Google search will show you in the past couple of years, there's some very significant Christian leaders who have fallen, if not left the faith. Disqualification is the option. Therefore, we strive. Therefore, we label. Therefore, we, we, we keep that reward before us. Lay aside those weights that are slowing us down. What are we bringing to the race? What are we bringing to the race of the Christian faith that's slowing us down? May we lay those aside. And then he says in verse, uh, verse, continuing with verse 1 in Hebrews 12, and let us run. I love that. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Christians, this is all going somewhere. If anyone, if any group of people should not be wandering aimlessly, it's the Christian. The Lord in his grace has called us out of darkness into life. He's called us out of a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. And our, 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 uh, our, our, our chief end is to glorify God and making disciples. That's our purpose. Is, is, is bringing heaven to earth through the power of the Holy Spirit, preaching the good news of this gospel. You might be saying, okay, well then how do we get there? Look at verse two. We'll run the race with endurance that is set before us. How do we finish? We look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The only reason you and I even have this race is because Jesus finished his race. Jesus endured the agony uh, of the cross, uh, endured the forsakenness of the Father for us, and he did that. He completed that for the joy that was set before him. And what if that joy, what if that joy was this for Jesus? What if it was the joy of him being there when you and I crossed the finish line? Joy of him there waiting for you, cheering you on, scooping you up in your arms when you cross from this life to the next. It's for the joy, the reward that he was willing to endure whatever could come. It's the joy that was set before him. That's how we finish this race, is looking to Christ. And so church, I'll conclude with this. May we run. May today, may we quiet our hearts before the Lord, and may we make a, a, just, a, just a determination. You know what? I'm, I'm, I'm tired of walking. I'm tired of drifting. Let me run let me run the good, uh, the good race that Christ has set before me because at the end of this life is an unfading, in uh, a perishable crown of glory that awaits us. And Paul's encouragement would be, let us run so that we can obtain it. Let us run so that we can obtain it. So with that said, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that um, Christ, you don't just tell us how to live, you modeled it for us. 
that you don't just tell us to run uh, the race well and keep that reward before us and endure whatever we have to endure to get there, but you did that, Jesus, for us. Uh, took our suffering, took our sin, took our shame so we could get your riches and your grace and your mercy. And so we thank you that we're the recipients of that free gift of salvation that you have given us today. And so I pray, Lord, for the, the weak, the downtrodden, the tired, uh, the faint of heart here this morning, that Holy Spirit, you'd fall upon them. Lord Jesus, fall upon us. Give us the strength we need to endure. Give us the strength we need to take another step because each step is a step closer to you, a step closer to glory. God, fill us with an insatiable desire to run the race well. Give us an insatiable desire for the salvation of our people we love, people in our family. Lord Jesus, our neighbors, our friends. God, and so Holy Spirit, would you gift us that? Would revival break out, not just across this nation, but in our hearts? May it start here first where we're willing to lay aside all the other races we're running, that we're willing to lay aside the American dream. We're willing to, to make some sacrifices, to endure whatever it takes so that some might come to know you, Jesus. So grant us that gift. We ask that. We, 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 we plead on that behalf, Lord. We, we beg for that gift, Lord, because this life is too short, the stakes are too high, and this race is too good for us to just drift. And so, Lord, realign us today. Realign us today. Pick us back up, brush off our shoulders, and, uh, and help us to run the race and to run it well that you set before us. So we thank you for your grace, Lord, and that you've changed our horizon from dark hopelessness to uh, a golden band of glory that's awaiting us. And I pray for anyone here who hasn't tasted and seen the hope that you give them, Jesus. Holy Spirit, save them now, I pray. You tug on their hearts. I pray they respond to your good news, that you call them out of darkness into light that you have salvation for them, that you have forgiveness of sins, uh, uh, peace of, uh, of the Father, peace of Christ, the love of the Father waiting for them. That they would simply open up their palms and surrender to you and say, here's my life, Lord, take it. Take it, Lord. They do that today and see that you are good, that you are good. And we pray all of this, Lord, in your mighty name. Amen.